Hello and welcome to The Unseen Shows, a new podcast series by Visual Artists Ireland. My name is Joanne Laws and I'm Features Editor of the Visual Artists News Sheet. This podcast series features interviews with artists whose exhibitions have been either cancelled, postponed or sealed behind closed doors due to the closure of all cultural venues in March in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The continued absence of physical encounters with art in public spaces has prompted us to find other ways of communicating with artists about their work. We feel that the distinctive pace and sensibility of the audio format provides a welcome break from excessive screen time that many of us are experiencing during lockdown. Given that we are disseminating these podcasts without accompanying visuals or moving image, technically these exhibitions will remain unseen. However, we hope these conversations will illuminate in other ways, making visible the rich inquiries that underpin each artist's wider practice. Our fourth podcast features an interview with Austin Ivers, whose solo exhibition Threads was due to open at the end of March at the Dock in Carrick Shannon. I spoke to Austin via Zoom in May about this new body of work, which will now be shown later this year. Okay, so your exhibition at the dock, which was called Threads, um, this was due to present your most recent body of work uh, involving photography, sculptural installation, and a new multi-screen video work called The World at War. Um, maybe you could start off just by describing some of these individual works, as well as your overall vision or ambition for the show, which has since been postponed. Uh, initially last year, Sarah Searson on the dock contacted me and asked me if if I would be part of Tolka's expansion of their 2020 project, and yeah. whereby they got previous curators and asked them to put on something. You know, people who had worked with Tolka, so it was a way of Tolka maintaining an outreach with its, its own past and also a way of the of going 2020 uh, ex- expanding its own remit beyond the city and the county. Yeah. So she she asked me to you know to put a proposal together. So. I I ended up proposing and I've made um, a sequence of photographs, uh, a number of sculptural objects, for want of a better word, and and as mm-hmm. you said, a, a, a movie, a multi-channel film. Uh, the, the photographs are of um, older pieces of technology, old uh, walkie-talkies, computers, um, uh, telephone exchanges. I've got a a couple of nice telephone exchanges and uh, they relate to the sculptural things as well and what's going on there is that uh, I have gotten old or primarily older computers or computer related things there's some of them are from the 70s and from the 80s uh, but that's not so much the what's important about them but the, why I, I i got them on board as things and that they're presented as 3d objects as sculptural things mm-hmm. uh, so that what i'm doing with them is presenting them as dead things they're almost like tombstones Mm-hmm. Uh, to to themselves, uh, I haven't dolled them up. I haven't restored them. I haven't restored them externally anyway. But you know, some of these things would have sat in you know offices for ten or fifteen years. And uh, I used to work in the in the IT sector as a as a sort of technician. So I'd spent a lot of time trying to fix things and keep things going and cleaning them. And and it's it's extraordinary the amount of abuse that a, that gear can take. You mm-hmm. know, that especially 
and had to clean a lot of things that had been in smoky environments and yeah. like the interior uh, of, of uh, you know, sort of, you know, computers and radios, these kind of things just get covered in tar. And also if there's a cat involved, forget about it. Uh, it's, it is pretty extraordinary that a hairy, tarry interior of a computer is, is kind of a, a, an, an interesting thing. But I, I brought them in as they're almost relics mm-hmm. and and i mean that not just as in that that they are leftovers from an old thing but also uh, to a degree even though we were talking about nothing that's older than 30 or 40 years they are they almost uh, work as uh, reliquaries or ossuaries yeah. of uh for um not so much a time past it's not about nostalgia but it's about um Ideas about communication, ideas about how we interact with ourselves, ideas about ideas about work, ideas about what it means to go to work and to be in an office. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so this, this kind of business. So that's what I'm thinking about with the with the um, with the, the computer things, and then with the with the video. Which, funnily enough, I'm actually reshooting from scratch at the moment. Oh. Uh, I've decided. <laughs> yeah, I've decided to take that time. I I had some. There was a couple of compromises I had to make. One of which was uh, a car that I was going to use, kind of a specific car, uh, the day before the shooting went on fire while I was driving it. So I was actually, yeah, I was just driving home from like being at the shops on a Saturday morning and flames start licking the the windscreen and the the cabin is smoking out, the interior of the car is getting full of smoke. So uh, there was an electrical short. So everything, everything that was plastic and rubber went on fire. So I had to compromise and that changed the way that I had to shoot the thing as well. And uh, I, I was making an edit that was based around the fact that this wasn't the work that I wanted. But now that I've got time to get the car fixed, I'm and uh, I'm, I'm able to reshoot it. But I, I was I was looking at how things like actually how, how car chases are shot in films mm-hmm. and and also you know what that means so that you know that there's a couple of sort of you know conic if you want the, i guess they're kind of car movies but i you know i'm not making things for car guys uh but that they are they're films that utilize something like a car which is a very 20th century thing as as, as a way of you know, almost having out, an out of body experience you know something like Zabraski Point which is quite a you know kind of an existential kind of film and also uh, Mad Max 1 the first Mad Max movie from 1979 there was yeah. uh, what I've been trying to do is actually replicate some of the shots from that specifically now not the shots when it goes flying off of bridges or anything <laughs> but just but using the using the models of you know when you've got the, you know certain iconic shots of a camera hanging over the back wheel as it's going down a white line mm-hmm. and that th- these are a language now it's not that it's not necessarily what's being communicated it's more about the language of these visuals rather than you know the, something about you know mad max stuff something about australia Mm-hmm. So whenever the show ends up hanging, that's what we're going to have. We're going to have uh, photographs of these things. Uh, we're going to have sculptural things and we're going to have a video thing as well, with hopefully with quite a cool soundtrack on it as well. Brilliant. Sounds fantastic. Um, I think I really relate to your work because uh, I think we grew up in a similar time frame, 80s and 90s. Obviously, this was a time of Thatcherism and Reaganomics and the minor strike the conflict in Northern Ireland, the AIDS epidemic, all presided over by the the Cold War between America and Russia. And so I think the world at this time appeared to be continually teetering on the brink of collapse. Um, And through your work, you seem to be tracing the psychic effects of the the nuclear age on popular culture. So I was wondering um, if if you kind of feel that entropy and social collapse provide fertile conditions for the production of art. 
God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've gotten a good twenty years out of it, anyway. Um, <laughs> I think I think that the, the thing is when I'm referencing this kind of stuff, um, I'm not thinking. I'm trying not to think about it nostalgically. I, you know, I don't think that this was a better time. But mm-hmm. one of the standout features of the of of the time for me, as as somebody who was like I was, you know, like I guess a lot of people, you know, uh, I was very immersed in popular culture in as much as you could be with two channels and you know, and or, yeah. like RT Radio Two had just started. So in as much as you could, uh, you know, in 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 Kerry. You know, we, we didn't have the multi-channel and, you know, the one semi-legal video shop and maybe about two two of my peer group had had VHS players. So access to culture was actually um, not as, well, obviously it's very pervasive now. It's easy. We have it on our phone, but access to culture was, okay, uh, on a weekly basis, do I buy, you know, the sounds or do I buy the enemy? I can't afford both. Um, getting all your books from the library. So you're very much at, you know, the, the, mercy of, of 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 the library system um you know the, the local cinema only had one screen and you know i was too young to get into most of the films i wanted to see so culture actually i i think it seemed more valuable because there was less of it yeah um, now not that you know say you know the kids these days those, those pesky kids it's not that they undervalue it <laughs> it's just that they've got access to everything all yes. the time now, uh, whereas you know before you order something and it might you know like getting something in you know uh, but whatever, joining the, the 2000 the AD comic book fan club, you had to get your know, UK postal order. It was a melodrama, you know? you know, there was no PayPal or anything. So culture, I, th- I think, was very valuable because you had to, you, it, it was just tougher to get your hands on. And something that I don't think I recognized at the time because I'm not compared with, but certainly now uh, when I compare to, you know, I suppose more recent times, that a lot of issues around primarily nuclear, nuclear war were very much to the center of culture. Yeah. So it, it could be, you know, that, you know, like some of the films that I'm referencing, like Threads and The Day After, which were on telly and they were like mega bleak. There was, they were ho- like absolutely hopeless. There was nothing redeeming whatsoever. And these were huge TV events, um, you know, that were seen by millions of people, you know, in very small markets. And then you had, I don't know, tunes like, you know, like Nina Hagen's, you know, 99 Red Balloons and, uh, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes. And like, you know, both yeah. of these things are about absolute nuclear annihilation. No, they're good tunes and all the rest of it, but they, they are, you know, explicitly referencing existential ideas. So, which I, I think is kind of interesting. And do you know what? Is the young people's music doing the same thing now? I haven't got a clue. I'm 50 years old. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be listening to the radio in the, in the same way as I did when I was like 12. But um, there was, a, to my mind, a lot of culture seemed to be about, about the imminent end of the world. And even a lot of kids telly, like Children of the Stone and stuff like that. Uh, and I guess things like maybe like Blake Seven and Doctor Who uh, as well. Like all these were pretty bleak. And, and I think that, that there was a certain sense of bleakness that, that, that was kicking around in, in the, maybe in the 70s and 80s. Or certainly, maybe not so much bleakness, but it was the end of the era of promise of the 60s like you know, with the, the first oil crisis and yeah. with the, the stuff going you know, south in the Middle East, uh, of course, what was happening in the north of Ireland as well and uh, civil rights issues in the States and elsewhere, that the, the promise of, you know, we'll never have to do any of this again after the Second World War, after the horrors of the Holocaust. I think, you know, that that had had its heyday of, of maybe 20 or 30 years. It's interesting when I think about that now, that uh, if you look in America and, you know, the, the, you know, Donald Trump's promise of making America great again, you know, like America was never great. No place was ever great. 
Mm. But, but it's interesting how that there is an idea, you know, a cultural idea. And that's what, you know, politics is. Politics is cultural ideas. There's a cultural idea of something that never happened. It's been sold back to people that never experienced it. And yeah. if they thought about it intellectually, they'd know that. It's funny. I do have a sense of like a revival of a kind of dystopian language in the last few years, maybe triggered mm. by the election of Trump. But just the idea of like conspiracy theories around whistleblowers and espionage and Russian hackers, um, not to mention um, the kind of like um, disasters linked to the, the climate crisis, such as um, yes. floods, floods, fires and the current global pandemic. Um, so um, I don't know, do you have any sense of like cultural responses to contemporary anxieties? Um, yeah, well, I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. Digital surveillance, um, big data, all of those kind of um, current instabilities that really were always perceived as the stuff of dystopian fiction. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, 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 I suppose that, you know, if, if we look now, I'm like, you know, a lot of commentators, you know, like, you know, perceive that the 2016 election in the States mm-hmm. was openly influenced by, you know, by Russian hackers and by Russian influencers, by, you know, by Russian digital intervention. And at the time, even I was going, God, no, I'm like, you know, how, how could that work in America? America is the most technologically advanced culture, yada, yada. Then, you know, some of those ideas are reflected in stuff like Black Mirror and Mr. Robot, um, yeah. you know, you know, in terms of the... I guess the political intrigue or the, the this topic intrigue uh, of these ideas, and and it appears to be, as far as I can make out, or sorry, as far as I've read, that uh, it's it's going to be even worse this time round. And so I'm okay. I'll, I'll I'll bring it back to you know so, some of the things that, that I've been thinking about uh, with, with some older films. Uh, in the first couple of RoboCop films, there one of the focuses in those films is that they got actual advertising agencies to make ads for products that don't exist. Yeah. And, uh, and they were told in these ads, you can go crazy, go nuts. So I was looking at those ads back in, you know, whatever, the late 80s and early 90s going, oh, that's crazy. You know, that's just bananas. <laughs> that would never happen. And then eventually when I got to see some contemporary American advertising at the time, my jaw dropped. You know, yeah. and, and I don't know if that's a reflection of the tameness of advertising and the culture that I was engaging at the time compared to the accelerated culture, you know, in, in, in North America, mm-hmm. or if it's just that it is actually nuts. It is actually crazy. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose it's kind of, you know, in our terms, you, you have, you know, like, you know, even just going back to someone like, you know, Jenny Halzer, you know, who just uses... The, 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 yeah, the, exactly. But what she's using is a, a simple tool of, of advertising of the common culture and sort of repurposing against itself. And yeah. uh, there was a, a, this interesting character I've come across recently, a fellow called uh, Simon Denny's over in the States. And he had this very nice piece, which is, it's a 3D model, but it's based on a, a patent that he has actually patented with the US uh, you know, patents office, I suppose, to have people who work in Google for, for them to be in mobile cells. Uh, which is was an idea that was kind of as well in uh, there was the Steven Spielberg film from a couple of years ago, Ready Player One, uh, nice. whereby you know the people who worked in Google, or it was a version of Google, were uh, locked in VR sets and literally in cells the size of uh, phone booths. That's that's how the, how they worked. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think that you know one of the things is uh, uh, maybe it's a job of an artist or it's just something that some artists do, which is to you know try and take the tools of the the metaculture. Uh, the superculture and repurpose them back against against the powers. It's the only way that, you know, because a lot of artists will be coming from sort of leftist notions anyway, but it's the only way that we can punch up, which is to use yeah. their guns, you know, to, to, use, uh, to, to use their stuff. 
So I don't, I don't know if that was an answer. But. Well, I mean, it kind of leads on to the next question, which is in a way a bit more utopian and a bit more about artistic agency in a way. And it's in relation to uh, 126 Artist Run Gallery um, that you co-founded in 2005. And I was wondering if, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked millions of times about 126 and its legacy, but I was wondering if you still believe in the DIY ethos of artist-led practice, almost as a, as I said, kind of um, utopian gesture of community building. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Though the thing is, when we when we kicked that off, that was myself and uh, Ben Gagan. Yeah. Uh, uh, when we started off one two six, I'm like, you know, it, the the. The, the utopian, uh, utopian idea uh, was not to the forefront. We just wanted some place so that we could see cool work in Galway. Yeah, uh, you know, and it, it, and I mean that actually quite selfishly. That that really was the way, and, and we thought it'd be a fun thing to do for us that we could have our own gallery. And and it was it was there is the DIY element to it, obviously. And it's not that it was done as an anti-establishment gesture. It was just totally outside of the idea of there being an establishment or not. It was we had the ability to lift the carpet in the house. That we lived in. It was as simple as that. And paint yeah. everything white. Ben's mam was friends with the landlord and the landlord lived in London. And so this is a house in just in suburban Galway. And yeah. he wasn't too bothered. He, he knew we weren't going to kill the house, but we just, we, we lifted the carpet and painted the floors grey. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, equals gallery because I, you know, I, I was working at the college and Ben knew people as well. So we were able to, you know, get things moving. So I'm like, you know, one, two, six is in its, it's in its currently it's in its fifth location. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons that it works is that there's a complete turnaround of staff or, or participants every two years. Yeah. And in many respects, that means that people who are going inside there are learning to rebuild the wheel every, you know, every time. But it, but it also means that unlo- certain other organizations are going to have the same people at the top for 20 or 30 years. This organization can't. It's built into it yeah. that basically it fails on a regular basis and has to restart. Like we've never moved because we've wanted to move. We've moved because the, the rent has gone up. You know, nobody yeah. wants to move a gallery. It's such a pain in the ass. Um, so, but, but the thing is that what was cool, I, I guess around, you know, about 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, there was these galleries popping up all over the place. And I don't mean pop-up galleries, but that, you know, the idea that there was artists led things, you know, all over the shop in Ireland. So there was the basement space in Cork and there was another one here in Galway. And yeah, I suppose Monster Trucks was a not dissimilar idea at the same yeah. time as ourselves. And, you know, these were all very exciting. We were just lucky that we were able to keep it going. There was maybe it's just something about Galway. You know, it was just a bit cheaper here than other places. But one of the things is that even though, you know, I suppose some people would sort of still associate maybe, you know, unfortunately or otherwise myself and Ben with the place, we haven't had anything to do with the running or even our decision making there for, I haven't, now I'm I'm on a consultative board, which means I'm some sort of elder lemon, really. You know, I'm I'm just like an old grey beard in the corner, getting crumbs <laughs> out of my moustache, and you know, having people bring me coffee. But I, you know, I don't make decisions. I don't make curatorial decisions. If they need some tellies, I might be able to sort them out with some tellies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's th- that's about it. But but what it means is that it's not it's not Ben and Austin's place. Yeah. And it hasn't been for like uh, 13, 14 years. And that's maybe how, how this place is run. And also, I think that what's good about these things is that often when they start off, people say, we got to succeed. We have to succeed. Uh, do you know what? You don't have to succeed. 
you know, failure in itself can be its own reward. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the only thing that will stop you succeeding is by not starting it. And uh, the, the, so that there is a, a DIY ethos. And, and it, but, you know, it, it's not like that the art market or, you know, the, the exhibitions landscape in Ireland is so developed and so sophisticated that we're like some sort of totally cool Lower East Side early 80s New York gallery. But, mm-hmm. you know, all we are is just, it's just a place where people can learn something about the idea of hanging shows and curating. You know, it's very much yeah. a lab. Yeah. Um, well, on a similar note, the final question I wanted to ask you really was in relation to your work as an educator. And I know you're, you're a lecturer in GMIT. Uh-huh. Wondering um, if there are any kind of particular values or skill sets that you want your students to learn um, in relation to the study and practice of art. Um, I know curiosity. That's, that's yeah. it, really. Yeah. You know, I like it's 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 a weird one. I mean, like when I went to college, it was a pretty loosey goosey experience, you know, and also like at the time, everything was based around your portfolio. There was nothing really to do with, um, you know, you, you, how good you were at, at your leaving cert. Uh, yeah. It was very much portfolio based, actually, to the point whereby when I did my foundation year, they had to get somebody in to teach us English because nobody could write. We were all terrible. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah, and so quite clever people went through that year. But, you know, like, you know, this is back when, you know, if people had dyslexia and dyspraxia and the like, it just was never being picked up. So, um the education, no, an art education is is it's quite a it's it's quite a strict thing now because it operates in you know the, the way institutions and all the all the art institutions are going towards technical university status where it's going to become even more rigid. So we've got to operate in terms of semesters, modules, you know, programs, all this kind of stuff. By its nature, uh, has to be much tighter than it used mm-hmm. to be. Um, and it, it kind of doesn't matter, you know, whether I think that's good or bad. It's just it's just the way it is now. So try and find ways to negotiate that is the is the question that's the, what the question is and so what do i want you know I, hopefully after somebody has spent three or four years in an art school they would be interested in looking at things and seeing things and reading things and listening to things uh with a bit more of a trained eye or ear or whatever sense it is that they're using yeah. than before when they went in and you know art school doesn't necessarily make good artists art schools really make good students that's, that's their job. That's the institution of a job was to make somebody who's very good at being a student. And I've had loads of people who've gone through and who've gotten firsts and, you know, whatever the hell that's meant to be. And they've never picked up a pencil in anger again after they've left, you know, that they've, they've yeah. got the... They've been happy enough with that. Then I've had other people who've just been sort of very chaotic and, you know, individuals who've found it difficult to work within the institution, within the, the, it, within the logic of the institution, and who've, once they've gone free range afterwards, have been much more successful. And, uh, you know, and, and those are, the, you know, the people who are still making five and ten years later. And yeah. I suppose that's another thing that you want. You want, you know, somebody's got their wits about them that, you know, whenever, when people are in college, everyone's moaning about the studio and the library's crap and I can't get access to this or that and the other. But then once you're dropped out in the world, it's like, bloody hell, that was a great place. Like for a lot of people, art school is the best studio they'll ever have. And this is for practicing artists, yeah. you know, like all that facility and all that, all that human resource, all this good stuff. You, you'll never have that under one roof again, uh, you know, when you leave. That's and, uh, you know, so trying to, f- you know, find people who can actually still be making five and 10 years later, that, that can be the thing. Mm. However yeah. it is to go about it. Yeah. Well, I, I guess as a as a concluding note, I do know that um, you're coming to the end of the academic year and you're really busy with student assessments and all the rest of it. So I wanted to just really thank you for your time uh, today. Uh, thanks, Joanna. 
You have been listening to The Unseen Shows, a podcast series by Visual Artist Ireland. These podcast interviews have been published every two weeks on SoundCloud. Where possible, condensed versions of some of these interviews will be published in the Visual Artist News Sheet. Special thanks to our production editor, Christopher Steenson, for audio editing and the music for the podcast. <laughs>